Hi church, good to be with you all. How are we all doing? How are you guys in the balcony? How's everyone downstairs? Come on, how are the guys in the balcony? See, there's more up there than there's down here. Welcome to church, it's really great to have you here. Thanks very much. Um, God is among us, God is here, and he loves you more than you could ever love yourself. And he has great plans for you, and he has great thoughts about you, and he, nothing, nothing surprises you, him about you, and nevertheless, he's just totally for you. And uh, in his presence, we're going to take time in his words, and as we do that, he has a way of turning up and touching us and speaking to us and uh, meeting with us just where we're at. So let's pray and ask God would do just that, just now. Father, thank you so much that you're right here just now. I love you, Father, and I thank you. You love everyone here. I pray that you would speak just now. And I ask that you'd speak through me. I ask God as we look at these verses, as I teach from this passage, you would reveal yourself through me and do the work you want to do in these people's lives. Come Holy Spirit, we trust you completely. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we get, there was a, a story, there was three guys and they were beside a river um, and it was a, it was a raging river, to, to, the heavy rains and this is a raging river and one of the guys, they're all believers and, they, and one of the guys prays, okay God, I pray, give me the strength to get across this river and he jumped in and he swam really hard, nearly died but he made it across the other side. The other guy said, okay God, Give me the tools to get across this river. And bing, a rowing boat appeared. Just to be clear, this isn't in the Bible yet. We're going to come to the Bible in a minute. A rowing boat appeared, and he jumps in the rowing boat, and he, with all his might, he rows across this river. The other guy prayed, God, give me the wisdom to get across this river. And bing, he became a woman. And she looked, and there, 100 yards up the road's, was a bridge, and she crossed over the river. Let's hear it for the women here today who are so wise. There is more than one way to get across water. Today we're going to be looking at an incredible miracle, not a mythical miracle, an incredible miracle, an historical miracle that Jesus performed where he walked on the water. The closest I've ever come to this was when I used to love fishing, and I remember one afternoon we were not catching fish. This is a very rare occurrence. And uh, on this occasion, we weren't catching any fish, so we decided, let's experiment. We had one of those huge, big fishing umbrellas. You know the ones you sit under when it's raining? You need it in Scotland. And, and, and we decided, let's see if we can float in one of these. So I, I turned mine upside down, and I, I just put it into the water, and my mates kind of steadied me, and I stepped into the upside-down umbrella on the loch, and it worked. Actually, <laughs> it actually worked. I float, you couldn't move much if you moved even slightly everything would go wrong. But we were able to drift gradually out into the middle of this lock. It's true. It worked. But don't try it. But it does work. <laughs> um, the context, before we get to the verses, the context is Jesus has um, performed several miracles. We're in John's Gospel, chapter 6. Now, we've been following through the verses of John's Gospel. He's performed incredible miracles. And as a result, crowds of people are following him. People like a spectacle. And just before the miracle we're about to read of today... He did that incredible miracle we looked at last week where he fed the multitudes of people. 
and he just with two, uh, just loaves and fish, he, he broke them and he prayed, and, and all of a sudden, what should have just fed one kid for lunch, all of a sudden fed potentially fifteen to 20,000 people. Incredible miracle. Straight after that, he dismissed the crowds, his disciples got into a boat, and he went up on a mountainside to pray, and this is what happened. John 6, verse 16. When the evening came, his disciples had went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. Now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. And a strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. They had rowed for about three or four miles. They saw, when they had rowed for about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water. They were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. Wow. Let me just take you on a journey through those verses. Five things I want to say. First of all, I believe that Jesus sends people into storms. Verses 16 and 17 says, When evening came, his disciples went into the lake, went down into the lake, where they got into a boat and set off across the lake. Now, that all sounds just kind of neutral. They went into the lake, got in a boat, went across the lake. But actually, this miracle occurs in many of the other Gospels. And here's how it reads in Matthew's Gospel. Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. (laughs) He knew full well there was going to be a storm. And it wasn't just that they got into a boat. No, no, Jesus made them get into the boat. Sure, okay. Yeah, he absolutely positive, and he made them get into the boat. Isn't that interesting? So some, I've heard someone say, you know, the safest place on planet Earth is the will of God. You've heard people say that, right? The safest place on planet Earth is the will of God. Uh, what about David? Or what about Daniel? You read about Paul, the apostle? Safest place on planet Earth being the will of God? I guess in the ultimate sense, yes. In, this, in, the, in the eternal sense, absolutely. But sometimes being in the will of God is what causes all your problems. You know, if, if you think back to the last miracle Jesus performed, there were so many people there, they had to come up with a miracle to feed them. They wouldn't have had that problem were it not for them being in the will of God. And, many, and do you know what? Sometimes the storms in your life are caused by your own stupidity, right? You know who you are, Okay. There are many times, however, where the storms in our lives are caused by actually we're in the will of God. We're doing what he called us to do. And as a result, we find ourselves in a storm. Jesus knew there'd be a storm. It's quite incredible. And and how does God do something in our lives in storms? There was a story of a family, a family of four. They had two kids. one of their sons was incredibly positive and very optimistic and always bright and bubbly. The other one was very pessimistic, very negative, a little bit like Sammy, but negative, grumpy, always saw the, the negative side to any situation he was in. So and they decided at Christmas they would just level things out a wee bit. So at Christmas time, they bought little Sammy, they bought him so many presents that from the floor to the ceiling in his bedroom, he would wake up and there'd be presents just to try and make him a bit positive. And in the, in the really positive kid's bedroom, the huge pile of horse manure. So the next morning, they woke up and they heard 
little Sammy was crying. And he went into his room, and there he was sitting in the bot, under this pile of presents, crying. He said, I don't know. There's too many presents. I don't even know where to start. And I thought, oh, come on. And then they went into the other kid's room, who's always the positive one. And they walked in, and there was this big pile of dung, and all they saw was two feet popping out. And they pulled him out, and, they, and it was dung all over him. And he says, well, do you have anything positive to say about this? And he said, you know, look at judging on the size of this pile of dung. I can't wait to see the pony. <laughs> you see, the thing about God is there's always something incredible, even in the worst of situations, that God is wanting to achieve in and through our lives. And Jesus sends them into the storm, and God had this incredible agenda. What would God want to do in someone's life in a storm? Here's one thing he wants to do, is he wants to make you stable. You remember in the Old Testament, in the book of Job, Satan uh, has this, as it were, a dialogue with God. And in effect, he says, you know what, God, you say you're his God, but I say he's using you. You know, he, you know, you say, you know, you, you think he's serving you, but actually he's just, he's just using you and he wants you to serve him. And here's the thing, God, his life is all about his money and his, his, he's liked. And he, I tell you what, God, his whole foundation is, is his money and his light. And if you removed all those things that he has, then you'll see he'll curse you too your face. And that was, in effect, the conversation that Satan has with God. The only reason Job likes you is what he's getting out of you, God. Now, God didn't cause any disaster in Job, but God did allow stuff to happen, and stuff happened, and the devil caused stuff to happen, and the devil does cause things to happen. And everything fell apart in Job's life. All those things that Satan viewed as the things that were the crux of Job's life were removed. And at the end of it, we see this amazing turnaround where Job finds God to be his stability. And I think it's often the case that you only find God to be your utter stability. Sometimes in the midst of instability, he becomes your stability. It's often in those moments where you suddenly get solid on this foundation, which was always there, but it becomes solid in a storm. It says in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 25, when the storm has swept by, the wicked are gone, but the righteous stand firm forever. So Jesus sent them into the storm. And then here's, here's the next bit in the verses. Jesus is in the storm. It says in verses 18 to 19, a strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had uh, roads about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boats, walking on the water, and they were frightened. They were freaked out. So here, all of a sudden, this, there's this turbulence, there's a storm coming. I don't know what storm you're facing. You might be facing a, a storm of a relational storm. Maybe you're facing a financial storm. Maybe you're facing a storm in your health. But the, there's a storm swells up and they're stuck in this. And in a storm, here's the key, look for Jesus in the storm because Jesus is right there and here's Jesus in this situation. And here's the point, he's not flying over the top of the water like a superhero. He's not swimming through the water like a human being. The Bible says he's walking on the water. It's touching him. He's touching it. He's walking on it supernaturally, but it's touching him and he's touching it. 
He's involved in it. He's engaging with it. And I, and I love how when God entered into human existence, he didn't come as some deified man or some humanized God. He came as one who is fully God and fully man. One who completely, 100% is man and understands every concern you've got, every trouble you go through, every emotion you've experienced. He understands what it is to be tempted. He understands what it is to experience weakness. It says in Hebrews, describing Jesus, Hebrews 4.15, that he understands our weakness for he has faced all the same testings we do. And when, you know, when, when others walk out, God walks in. And in the middle of your storm, God steps into the situation. I love what it says in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you go through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, your Savior. You've got examples of this right through the Bible. You have uh, in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel, you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And there was that moment where King Nebuchadnezzar, violent, secular king, uh, he desired everyone to worship him. And basically, he set an image of gold in his own name, set this up, and he insisted that everyone should honor and worship this image. Now, Daniel and his friends refused to. And the danger they faced was this, if you didn't bow down and worship this image that the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar had set up, you would be thrown into the fiery furnace. But they, with great courage, refused. And so they were brought before King Nebuchadnezzar, and uh, they still refused to bow down and worship that image. And the Bible says that in his fury, King Nebuchadnezzar threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the blazing furnace. And then he, sh- he was shuddered. He, sh- he was shaken. He-, he looked out and he saw right there in the blazing furnace, not only were they alive, but there was four of them. Not just three of them, there was four of them. And, and, it-, and it says in-, in Daniel chapter 3, verse 25, that the fourth looks like the son of the gods. That Nebuchadnezzar said, I see four. I threw three in and I see four. They're unharmed and there's a fourth there. And the fourth looks like the son of the gods. I think, there was, he, I think Jesus Christ had stepped right into that furnace with them. When you go through the fire, I will be with you. You need to understand there's nothing you go through, no matter how turbulent or how disastrous or how life-threatening it may be, there's nothing you go through where God does not even just step right. He doesn't even, he's not just with you in general. He's right there with you. He steps in and he intervenes and he moves with you in these situations. That's the God we serve. It says in Mark's account of of. This, this miracle, it says in Mark 6, he came to them walking in the sea and he intended to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and they cried out. They've been watching too many movies, horror movies. So they said, it's a ghost. Uh, but it says, the Bible says, he intended to pass them by. <sighs> Man, that's a little bit weird. <laughs> you know, Jesus is walking in the water. There's the guys in the boat. Hey, lads, we're going to the other side. He intended to pass them by. But the Bible says, they cried out. You know, was, was he intending to go to the other side? Did he kind of miss them because he was so distracted? Because actually walking on water is quite complex. So he was quite distracted with what he was doing. So he didn't, oblivious to the whole purpose of his walking in water. Oh, sorry, I was coming out to meet you guys. But he's been concentrating and walking in water. No, that wasn't what it was. He deliberately intended to pass them by. Wow. Why would God do that? Why would God do that? Well, I think it's the same as what Jesus did. Remember when he passed through that town of Jericho and there was a blind man there and he was passing by. 
And the blind man cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd told him, shh, shh, don't bother him. And then he cried out even louder, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And eventually, Jesus turned around and says, bring him to me. And this blind man stands before him. And I love what Jesus said. He says, what do you want me to do for you? like a new puppy, you know, or something. Seriously? Well, it's a bit obvious, really. I would like to see. But there's something about the importance of you crying out and you asking. I mean, otherwise, prayer, what's the point of praying? If God's going to do what God's going to do, why do we need to pray? If, if God's will be done anyway, then why do we need to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done? If somehow or another our prayers weren't completely connected with the will of God happening on earth just exactly as he wanted to happen. But our prayers are essentially involved in it. And I think what was going on here is it was necessary for them to cry out. It says in Isaiah 55 verse 6, call on him while he is near. You see, God doesn't work in the because sto- you're in a storm. God doesn't just, oh, they're in a storm, I'll, I'll do something for them. No, God doesn't work just because you're in a storm. God works because you cry out to him in your storm. And that's what happened in this moment. They cried out, they called on God. A vivid example of this happens uh, with a couple who are actually uh, in our Rosenheim church, Destiny Church Rosenheim, uh, which my friend Liam Smith leads. And there's a couple there, an older couple called Gunther and Giuliano. And they had been on holiday in France and there was a coastal resort they were at and they, were, they went out swimming and there was strong tides and they basically got into a real bad situation where they started being swept out to sea completely at the mercy of these tides. And they, it, was, it was a kind of downward force. It was almost like a whirlpool thing going on. And they, were, they, they knew, this is us, we're drowning. And they, this, is, this is a true story. They cried out to God. They said, Jesus, save us. Giuliano prayed that. Next, they don't remember anything else that happens until next thing, she wakes up on the beach and Gunther was on top of her. And they came around to the beach. They had no idea what happened between that crying out to God and then being on the beach. God saves people in storms. It's an awesome example. Jesus is in the storm. But not only was Jesus in the storm, Jesus was actually overcoming the storm. You know, he was in the storm, but it wasn't doing to him what it would usually do to a human being. Um, Just like sin didn't have a hold on him, and just like the devil didn't have a hold on him, and just like death had no threat over him. So also he was now overcoming this, this natural phenomena. He was walking on a storm, walking on the water. He overcomes the storm, verses 19 to 20. They saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, again, the other gospels say they, they thought he was a ghost. They were frightened. They thought he was a ghost. They have spent the whole night worried about the storm. Now, now there's a ghost to worry about. And it's like everything's gone from bad to worse here. And, and they're crying out in fear. But Jesus said, do not be afraid, it is I. Now, you won't see this because unless you are a Greek scholar like me. <laughs> Thank you that none of you laughed at that. You think, all right, yeah, I get that. Yeah, he is a Greek scholar, that's great. Um, in the Greek language, it is I... Is, is two words. It's ego, imai. And it's actually, it, it, the, in Jesus, Jesus spoke Greek, and that was the, that was the Aramaic, that, that language that they spoke. The, they actually used a Bible, a translation of the Old Testament. 
their translation of the Old Testament, they spoke Greek, their translation of the Hebrew Old Testament was called the Septuagint. It was a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. That's, that was the Bible Jesus would have used. That was the Bible that the common people would have used in Jesus' day, the Septuagint. In the Septuagint, ego imai, that phrase, it is I, actually, it actually translates I am. When Jesus says, do not be afraid, it is I, he actually literally translates it, do not be afraid, I am. Now, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, when you get to Exodus chapter 3, where Moses encounters God in the burning bush, you remember that amazing moment? And Moses was afraid in that moment, and, 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 and God meets with him there, and he commissions him and says, Moses, I want you to go and deliver my people from slavery in Egypt. And, and then Moses says, okay, who will I say sent me? Because they're going to ask me, what's his name? And I'm, I'm going to have to say, I don't, I, I don't, what's your name, God? And God says, tell them, I am. I said, now I don't know if that helped Moses in any way. Okay, that didn't really help much, you know. Like, better, he is... But no, that's no, just, he is. Okay, so, I am sent me. And that, that, that same phrase, Jesus uses. In fact, in the, that word, I am, is translated Jehovah. It is the name of God. It is the incredible, unique self-disclosure of God to the world. He just is, always has been, always will be, just is. The self-existent one, not dependent on anything or anyone for his existence. Always has been, always will be, I am just is. He's great. That's God. And Jesus takes that exact same self-disclosure of God and applies it here to himself. So clear. He says, do not be afraid. I am. That's what he was saying to us. And you can hear that for yourself. You don't need to be afraid. I am. He is this. That God is on the throne. That God is great. And that Jesus is revealing himself to his disciples in this way. And this is the first time in actually John's gospel Jesus does this several times. He makes seven, sorry, five direct statements of, I am, I am. He does it five times. And then on another occasion, on seven times, he will refer to himself as, I am the bread of life. That's what we'll look at next week. I am the resurrection of life. Each time when he says, I am this, it is a direct reference to the, the usage, I am. It was a unique way of saying it that related completely back to, it was not the normal way you would introduce yourself. It was a way that you would introduce yourself if you were God, as it was described in the Old Testament. It's incredible. And the, and the Bible says, in, in, this is in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 14, of the same event. It says, when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. You see, what happened here, this is the first time that he had disclosed himself as God in the flesh, and they realized it. And at this point, they now worshipped you see, in the good times, in the good times, they understood, Jesus, you're great. You're a miracle worker. They'd seen him multiply water into wine. They'd seen him multiply the loaves and the fishes. They'd seen him heal the cripple at the, the pool of Bethesda. They'd seen him do lots of great things. In the good times, you're a miracle worker. You're amazing. In fact, you're the Messiah. They understood those in the good times, but in the storm, they understood, you're God. And it's oftentimes in a storm that people realize that Jesus isn't just a good guy but that Jesus is indeed God. And because he's the son of God, 
today you can worship him as God because he's eternal. He's just as, ama- as amazing right now as he, is, as he was then. He is just as amazing right today. And so it might be today that you currently don't worship Jesus. And you might even think the idea of worshiping Jesus is blasphemous. I have to tell you, you all owe your entire life to him. He's the one who created you. Your very heartbeat is dependent on Jesus Christ. So it's not just appropriate. It's essential that you worship Jesus today. So why don't you fall down today before him and allow him to be the Lord of your life? Acknowledge you are the son of God. You see, people meet God in storms. My my grandfather, it was in World War II, as he was entering the storm of World War II, he entered that storm, sorry, World War I in the Psalm he was. He entered the storm of the Psalm, not in relationship with God. He left World War I a fully-fledged follower of Jesus, and he gave the rest of his life to serving Jesus as a minister in Australia. That was my grandfather. Some of you heard of uh, Kirsten Powers, the, the columnist for US to, USA Today and Newsweek and the contributor to Fox News, she talked about, she tells a story of how she went from being an atheist to being a believer in Jesus. And she, she, she says that as she was going through a really rocky patch in life, you could call it a storm, uh, that she, her friend suggested that she goes to a Bible study that was going on in someone's living room in an apartment in New York City. And, and this is what she said. She, I remember walking into the Bible study. I had a knot in my stomach. In my mind, only weirdos and zealots went to Bible studies. And I don't remember what they said that day. All I know is that when I left, everything had changed. I never forget standing outside that apartment and saying to myself, it's true. It's completely true. The world looked entirely different. It's like the veil had been lifted off and I had not an iota of doubt in my heart. I was filled with an indescribable joy. Isn't that awesome? That in the midst of crisis, God meets people. God appears as God in the midst of storms. My mom, in the midst of the biggest storm of her life, as she came to the end of her life, two or three days before she died, she had a tangible vision of Jesus in the living room of of my house back in Glasgow. And she was utterly, utterly transformed from that point forward. Utterly, completely, blown away. She, from that point forward, she just couldn't talk, stop talking about him. Uh, even, even, in a, even as she went to a whisper, as she was fading away, you could go close and you just hear her saying, oh, Jesus, you're amazing. She was utterly blown away by seeing Jesus in the midst of her storm. And I have to say to you, I promise you, if you're a follower of Jesus, when that storm comes in your life, may it be decades away, but when that storm comes in your life and you are in that moment of the ultimate storm of your life where you're transitioning from this life into eternity, I promise you, if you're a follower of Jesus, he will be with you in that storm. I don't know if you'll have a tangible vision of Jesus or not. Either way, I can assure you, he'll be with you in that moment and you'll be able to glorify him for all eternity. He is truly Lord and you can live your life for him. Jesus appears in storms. But then notice And you don't see this in this gospel, but in the other gospels, in Matthew's account, there's something awesome that happens as well. And this is my fourth point. Jesus empowers us to overcome the storm. Let me take you to Matthew chapter 14, verse 28. This is after Jesus has appeared to them in the storm. They freaked out. He says, do not be afraid, it is I. And this is what Peter the apostle says, Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. And this is what Matthew inserts. And this is a cool little thing that happens in the middle of this. Jesus was overcoming the storm. Now, Peter says, if it's you, call me to come to you on the water. 
You know, he didn't say, if it's you, solve my problem by Monday, or get me a job by Monday, or if it's you, God's change my circumstance, or if it's you, God's give me a husband, the next one who walks through the door. No, no, not him. The door number two, God, door number two. Okay, so instead of Peter calling out to Jesus and asking Jesus to change the circumstance. He didn't, I mean, would it not have been the logical thing saying, Jesus, stop the storm? If that's you, Jesus, stop the storm. That would be the logical thing. But Jesus went to another level. So Peter went to another level. He, he saw that Jesus wasn't bothered by the storm. He saw that Jesus was overcoming the storm. Isn't that interesting? So instead of praying, Jesus, stop the storm, if it's you, he said, if it's you, tell me to come to you. In other words, I would also like to overcome this storm. It's an incredible moment. So Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. And I believe, that, I believe this is the case for believers. Jesus Christ overcame this world. The things that would usually overcome us, sin, Satan, death, which would usually have totally the upper hand on the human race, did not have the upper hand on Jesus Christ. Death could not hold him. The cross could not hold him. Why? Because he was not a sinner. He died for sinners. He, he died on behalf of sinners. He voluntarily laid his life down, but God resurrected him by the power of the Holy Spirit. Death could not hold him. And Satan was ultimately and legally defeated on the cross. So you need to know when you come to Jesus and give your life to Jesus, the one who died for you and rose again, then you also are a conqueror. You are no longer under the dominion of sin, even though you might struggle with sin sometimes. You are no longer under the dominion of death, even though you will die. You just, it's, just, it's just a transition. Literally, it's just, it is just a transition for you. It's not eternal. You won't see, the Bible calls it the second death. You won't see that. Death is just purely a transition where you exit this body, and there will come another body eventually. It'll be cool, but don't worry about all that just now. Death Satan no longer has dominion on you. Ultimately, his chains, his puppet strings have been cut over your life. That's the good news. And in fact, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, that you have been raised up with him and seated us. The Bible says he raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. If you are a believer, that's not just talking about when you go to heaven. It says, believers, you have been raised up with him. And, and you're sitting here in Leith today, and you think, this doesn't really feel like heavenly places, and even though there are occasional angels in this room. Uh, but it doesn't really feel like heavenly, a heavenly place. And yet the Bible says that spiritually speaking, in your spirit, you have, the moment you came to God, you knew what it was like, you came alive on the inside. Actually, what happened is your home is now heaven. In your spirit realm, you are already united with Christ. You don't need to wait till death before you become united with Christ. Now, the moment you accept Jesus, from that point forward, for the rest of your eternal existence, you are united with Christ. And sure, you're in this body just now, but you are spiritually speaking, in terms of authority, in terms of spiritualness, in terms of your connection with God, you are seated with Christ in heavenly places. So where are your problems? They're not over you. Your problems, they're under you. Where is the devil? He's under you. Where is, the, where is even death? It's under you. In Christ, you have been called to overcome. You are now lifted to a higher level, even though you have to still walk through this life, face the challenges of life, 
you are spiritually speaking seated with Christ in heavenly places. Give me an amen if you agree. Let's go back to Matthew's gospel, Matthew 14. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you in the water. Jesus replied, come, he said. And then Peter got down out of the boat and walked on water and came to Jesus. This is amazing. Now, let me make a point. He wasn't walking on water. He was walking on a word. C-O-M-E. And it was solid. He stepped out on a word. That's what the solidity was. He trusted the word of Jesus. If that's you, just tell me the word, come. And none of the other disciples walked on water. They didn't have the word. But when you get the word, you can step out and walk on water. So are you stepping out and walking on a word from God? Are you doing that? As a church, we're doing that. Did you know that? We're collectively walking on water. We are walking on the words that God has spoken to us. Emily mentioned earlier, we're one church currently in three locations. So there's hundreds of people meeting currently in our Sunday services right now in Gorgie and also across in, in North, and here we are in Leith. But uh, in February, God willing, we launch our new location in South Edinburgh right out at Ikea, which is really exciting. Woohoo! And a few of you are going to be part of that. And on Thursday night, we had our, our preparation to launch meeting, which was so cool. And there was about 70 people there, and that's going to form the backbone of that new launch that starts in February. But what was really cool, you might remember, um, as I was praying and we were seeking God as a senior team, Lord, where do you want us to launch our next location? I remember phoning, we, 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 were, we were feeling God was saying South Edinburgh. That's what we were feeling. But I wanted to get others to pray with me, and I phoned my friend Gordon, who's up in the Highlands, and he's, he's very prophetic. And I asked him, Gordon, could you pray for us as we are launching our next location? I just, I'm really looking for God, to God for direction. And he said, actually, Peter, I have been praying for you, and I keep getting this word in my head. It makes no sense to me. Usually I pray God give me a little bit more than that so I can explain something, but I haven't got more than that, so let me just tell you what I've got. And he said, all I've got is a word, and it's the word Mayflower. And I thought, okay, thanks, Gordon. So I took that, and I, as you do, you, you go to the ultimate source of all knowledge, Google. And I threw Google... Uh, Mayflower into Google, and up comes on Google Maps three Mayflowers in Edinburgh. One is a pub in Wrestlerig, so that didn't really help me. One is a pub in Lonehead, ah, that's South Edinburgh, and the other one's a, a Chinese takeaway on Bonnie Rig Main Street, South Edinburgh. Okay, so two out of three are South Edinburgh, so it's kind of like, well, that's kind of what we're feeling, but it didn't seem, I mean, it was kind of vaguely, like a shotgun vaguely, in that sort of direction, but it wasn't like a sniper accurate but okay, I'll go with it. So we started stepping out in line with what we were feeling already. God was saying to us, launch south. Anyway, at the launch event on Thursday, one of the guys came up to me, Charlie, and he said, Peter, I meant to tell you, you know, when you announced that thing about the Mayflower, I don't know if you know this, but all the villages in in, the, in that Lothians area there are named after flowers. And often their football teams are also named after flowers. I said, I didn't know that. And he said, well, so for example, uh, Dalkeith is the thistle. And so therefore, Dalkeith Thistle is the football team. And Bonnie Rig is the, anyone know? It's the Rose. Yeah, Bonnie Rig Rose. So that's the football team. And he said, guess what Lone Head is? The Mayflower. And I thought, wow. So it wasn't just randomly, there were two Google searches appeared there and one was in wrestler. But actually, now that's sniper accurate. Whoa, that's accurate. Isn't that cool? that God spoke to my mate in the Highlands with a word. Now, either my mate in the Highlands did a ton of research, or 
That was the Lord confirming what we already knew God was saying. So here we are, stepping out on a word. We don't know where we're going to meet, but we're launching in February. It'll be solid. Where we're stepping out, God will do a miracle. So we're living on a word. Peter was stepping out, not on water here. He was stepping out on a word. Isn't that cool? Overwhelming. Thank you. That, I'm overwhelmed by your enthusiasm. Yeah. I thought it was that good. Verse 30 says, when he saw the wind, he was afraid. So he stepped out and walked on water and said, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink and cried out. Now, what's interesting here is this. He sees the wind and for some reason that makes it harder to walk on water. Because you all know that walking on water is dead easy when it's completely calm and there is no winds. But here he sees there's winds, and that makes it a lot harder to walk on water. I guess it's harder because you're having to walk up and then walk. I don't know what made it harder, but somehow or another, this made it difficult for Peter. So he saw the wind, the Bible says, and he starts to sink. Isn't this crazy? And, he's, and he cried out, let's keep going in the verses, Lord, save me. Verse 31, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. So he calls out, Lord, save me. What does Jesus do? Jesus reached out his hand and held him under for 30 seconds just so he'd learn his lesson. Well, that's the God some of you grew up with, isn't it? That was the God some of you grew up with. You know, this will teach you. God will teach you this lesson. That's, that's the God some of you grew up with. But that's not the Bible here, is it? What does, what does the Bible say? Immediately. Whew, immediately. Inspector Gadget Arms. Whew, pulls you right out immediately. That's the God we serve. And I love this. The emphasis of this passage is not on the weakness of Peter's faith, but on the greatness and the strength of Jesus's grace. That's what this verse is all about. This is not a story about great faith. This is a story about great grace. This is about a God who, even though we step out and sometimes we fumble and fall, this is about a God who steps in. You see, this grace is greater than your bankruptcy. This grace is greater than your divorce. This grace is greater than when you were laid off. And this grace is greater than when you screwed up. This is a story about great grace, and that is the gospel. And, and then Jesus grabbed him, immediately pulled him out, and he says, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And the other disciples in the boat were saying, yeah. <laughs> Weak faith. They were all in the boat. It's like the guys in the football, you know, I, I, I go to the Hearts matches, I'm so sorry, folks in this part of town, but I go to the Hearts matches, I have a season ticket holder with my son, and we're, we're there and we're cheering on the team, but the amount of people that are sitting there with their bovril and their pies, and they're shouting, that was rubbish, you could do better than that, and they're saying it in different ways than that, they're being very expressive in the way they say these things to the referee and to the different, and they're expressing their disgust at how unfit they are as they're sticking into their pie and their bottle. It's like the disciples are probably thinking, yeah, Peter, that was kind of weak faith, wasn't it really? You have little faith, he says, why did you doubt? You know, why did Peter sink? Well, I don't think the problem was with the quality of Peter's faith. You know, you try walking on water. It's pretty good quality faith. And I don't think the problem was with this quantity of this faith. You remember Jesus said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be removed. So it wasn't to do with the quantity of his faith or the quality of his faith. I think it was to do with the duration. Say duration. I think it was to do with the duration of his faith. It just didn't hold out very long. And when Jesus says, why did you doubt? It's a Greek word. Uh, that Literally, is, it's, it's a Greek word. Let me try and say it. Disteozo. 
exactly that. Which comes from two Greek words, which is dis, which means two or double, and stasis, which comes from stance or standing. So literally, the word doubt literally translates a double stance. In other words, he's going two ways at once. He's shifted between two positions. He's refusing to choose one way over another. And this was Peter. He was, oh, it's windy. You can't walk in water. Oh, there's Jesus. I'll be fine. Oh, no, it's windy. You can't walk in water. Oh, it's Jesus. I'll be fine. And this is what his doubt was. And so often this is what our doubt is. It's not that we have, don't have quality faith. It's not that we don't have quantity faith because even mustard seed faith moves mountains. It's actually that the duration of our faith, we just don't hang in there long enough. And as long as he walked on the words, he was absolutely fine. But as soon as things, circumstances started to happen, which seemed to contradict the word that he just heard, that's when all of a sudden he started to wobble and he started to slip. And you've got to be able to keep your focus in the midst of the storms of life. The same thing happens with us. We step out in faith and then discouragement comes or circumstances throw negative light on what we thought was all going to be fine. Or someone makes a comment to you. Or you, you, you face a, a financial crisis. Or you face an illness. Or maybe it's the battle with it. Even it's the words that not are coming from outside, but it's the words that are coming from inside. It's your own self-doubt. And words that you're speaking to yourself all the time. I can't do this. I, I, why am I th- even thinking I should? Why was I even hoping to take a step out in, in this direction? Because, man, of course that can't work. And you're telling yourself this stuff. And it, it's like a wave it's like a wave coming, and the wave now feels bigger than the words you were stepping out on, and yet the words you were stepping out on was absolutely solid, and these waves are trying to dwarf that word, and, and you're letting it happen because you're just going with it, and it's, it's, it, can, it can happen so easily. It's like you see that tweet of that negative comment. It's like a wave, and all of a sudden your faith goes, or you read that comment or that text message that someone sent you, like a wave, just a small wave, and yet it affects you. You give it your attention rather than giving his word your attention. And you see this right through the Bible. You see way back in the book of Nehemiah, there was a man called Sanballat. And as Nehemiah was stepping out in line with the word that God had given him to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, Sanballat was doing everything he could to, it was like pour water on the fire. And he was trying to do everything he could to distract Nehemiah. And so distraction was one of the, he was trying to cause Nehemiah to doubt that there's no chance you're going to succeed. He was even trying to get Nehemiah to fear. Listen, you're not going to make it in time. There's too many enemies. You're going to be overrun. And all these words were trying to vie for the attention of Nehemiah. But Nehemiah had to do everything he could to keep his mind on what God had placed in his heart and on that word. And as he kept his heart in track with that word, he was able to walk on water. It says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that this is what we are to do. That we are to fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And it says in verse 32, and when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. You see that? He climbed into the boat, then the wind died down. Notice the wind didn't die down when Jesus grabbed his hands. You see that? What was going on here? Was it that the moment Jesus grabbed him, instantly that was everything fine? No, the wind died down after they got in the boat. So here's what I think happens. I think he and Jesus walked back to the boat together in the storm. I think Jesus was saying, all right, let's try again. And actually, 
the distance from where Peter sank to the boat, Peter walked that. That's the point. I love that. I love that. Jesus here gives him a second chance. He, he, he picks him up and says, have another shot. Let's do this again. There was a cool story of the vice president of IBM. He came to the CEO of IBM with this great idea of how he could improve the company. And the CEO gave the go-ahead because he trusted him. And this guy started this whole new initiative within IBM. It was an absolute flop, and it cost $10 million. Anyway, he was so demoralized from it, he turned up the next day uh, after, after this had all gone downhill. And he went into the CEO's office, and he said, listen, I've completely failed you in the company. I handed my resignation. And uh, the CEO uh, said this. He says, you are not resigning after I've spent $10 million on your education. <laughs> and you understand that you fail, you understand you make mistakes, but hey, at least you got out of the boat and walked on water. Yeah, I've failed tons of times. I've failed tons of times, but at least I'm not sitting on my backsides doing nothing about my faith in a nation that so desperately needs God to do great things, right? And we've, we've failed as a church so many times. We were very rough at the edges. We make many, many mistakes. We are not a perfect church by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, look, look, look at Sammy. So we, we're just very, very grateful that God is incredibly gracious towards us. Towards the end of Peter's life, he, he wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have suffered grief and many kinds of trials. Trials is just another word for storms. Um, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than golds, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Here we see this Peter saying, actually, when you face the storms, when you face the challenges, what's going to happen is it's going to strengthen your faith. That's why God sends you the storms. He wants your faith strong. Because according to this verse, your faith is so precious. Your faith is more, the, the most precious thing you've got in your life. Did you know that? It is the most precious thing you've got in your life. And th this is the journey that God wants us to step out on. You see, faith is like a muscle. It's, it's like a muscle. You exercise a muscle, it grows. You exercise your faith, your faith grows. And it's only in these times your faith gets stronger. And God's calling us to not just apl apl applaud him for overcoming the storm, but God's calling us to now, calling us out so we can overcome the storm. The things that would have previously held us back, God calls us to step out, trusting him, the one who already overcame for us, that we can walk in victory and overcoming, and we can make a difference with our lives. That's what he's calling us to do. Someone wants to find faith as F-A-I-T-H, fantastic adventure in trusting him. And this is an adventure. He's calling us to step out in this adventure of dramatic steps, believing him to do the great things that we could never have done. And the Bible tells us in, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, that Everyone who is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. You want to overcome this world? You want to overcome Satan, sin, and death? Then trust in the Jesus, the Savior, who overcame this for you on the cross. And the final word I want to say is this, is that Jesus gets us to the other side. I love this. Let's go back to John's gospel, verse 21. He says, when, then they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately, say immediately, immediately the boats reached the shore where they were heading. Immediately. It's, it's so cool. 
Jesus steps into the boat, and then immediately the boat arrives at the shore where they were heading. It's an incredible moment. It speaks to me of grace. You see, when Jesus gets in the boat of your life, you've already arrived. You don't have to, you're not like, all right, I'm on a good journey. I've got to earn it now. I've got to work hard. No, no. When Jesus steps into the boat of your life, you have arrived. Say, I have arrived. As soon as Jesus is in your life, you've arrived. Here's some verses. 1 John 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe. Anyone believe here? I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may may know you have eternal life. I remember chatting to some Mormons uh, in, in my little village I grew up on. They were just out walking and chatting to people in their suits and all this, and there are 500 wives beside them, and they were there. They really stood out. And I got into a conversation with them, and we were talking about, because I was a believer in Jesus, and I talked about how I've got this assurance that I'm saved, and they did not have this assurance. They were saying, no, no, you can't know you've got eternal life. You'll only know that when you stand before him. A Muslim will be the same. We kind of hope that we do enough good things that God will accept us. No, no, you need to understand, if it's based on how good you are, you're doomed, doomed. You are doomed if it's based on how good you are. You're really bad. I'm worse. We're lost if it's based on us. We're saved if it's based on him. Jesus, according to scripture, it says, he, John wrote this to us, that, he would, that we who believe in Jesus might know that we have, past tense, say I've already arrived. Here's another great verse, Romans 8 verse 30. Those who he predestines, he also calls. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Think about it. Predestination. God saw you ahead of time. And therefore, he called you to himself. When did that happen? Well, in your life, if you're a believer, that happened in the past. And then what happened in that moment? You, you, oh, you, you knew that drawing of God and you said yes to God. And in that moment, you were justified. You were forgiven. You were made right before God's. When did that happen? That happened in your past. Those whom he justified, the Bible says, he also glorified. When's that going to happen? Well, in our existence, that's future. But notice how God describes it in, Hebrew, in Romans chapter 8. He says it like, it's already done. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. In other words, here's the point. If you know you've been justified, I can assure you, you've already arrived. I, I know you've got to work it all out. I know you're on this journey. I know you haven't ultimately stood before, but as far as he's concerned, he who stands outside of time, he declares, you're already glorified, even though that's a future event for us. Say, I've already arrived. And then finally, John 5, 24, Jesus said, this is the last chapter we were looking at. Jesus said, very truly I tell you, whoever hears my words and believe in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged because he has crossed from death to life. Say, I've already arrived. That's what it is to be a believer in Jesus. Religion says do, Christianity says done. And that's all what Jesus Christ is all about. So he's the savior. He's the one who came walking in the water. He's the one who overcomes the world. He's the one who who empowers us in the midst of storms to overcome. And he's the one who ultimately gets us to the other side immediately when he is in the boat of our lives. Let's pray. God, we honor you. We say thank you so much 
for your incredible love and mercy and goodness. Jesus, thank you that you love everyone in this room. And Lord, I thank you that the reason you came into this world was to save sinners like us. Jesus, we're so grateful to you for your incredible love and mercy. And I pray for everyone here today, God, that each one of us, wherever we're at, we will connect with you. God, I pray for those who today are far from you. I pray, God, in their storm, they will cry out and they will find you to be their God. In Jesus' name. I pray, God, for those who are in the midst of storms and they feel overwhelmed. God, I pray that they will not look at the waves. I pray they will walk on the word. I pray that you will be their rock-solid foundation. And in the midst of the storm, God, would they hear your voice and would that voice of God's become something solid for them to walk on. In Jesus' name. Just each one of you in this moment, pray back your own response to God. While people are praying, it might be that one or two of you here, you know that you haven't yet made a personal commitment to follow Jesus. And the great news is that when Jesus died on that cross, he did it for you. He rose again. He's alive right now. And he loves you and he wants to be your savior. But he waits for you to cry out to him because he's a gentleman. He doesn't impose it on anyone, but he waits for you. So today, why not cry out to him? Why not come and give your life and future and everything to him? If that's you, I want to help you do that. Very simply, I want to lead you in a prayer. And I invite you to pray this prayer after me, just one line at a time under your breath. Pray, dear Lord God, thank you so much for your love for me. Jesus, thank you that you are here just now. I believe that you died on the cross to take away my sin. I believe in the third day you rose again. I believe that you are alive right now. Today I turn my life over to you. I ask that you would be my Savior, my God, my Lord. From this day forward, I put my faith in you. Thank you for hearing my prayer and accepting me today as your child. If you prayed that prayer, I'd love to pray for you. That's a great prayer you've just prayed. If that's you and everyone else is praying just now, if you prayed that prayer and that's the decision you've just made in God's presence, could you just let me know you made that decision so I can pray for you? If you prayed that prayer, let me know you did it just by raising your hand. While everyone else is praying, just pop your hand up and say, Peter, today I prayed that prayer. Is anyone like that today? I'll wait for a minute. It's a big decision. It's a great decision. If that's you today and you prayed that prayer, just pop your hand up and say, Peter, I did that. Is anyone like that today? thank you so much for my friend who today has reaffirmed his faith in you and I pray this will be the beginning 
of a new strong journey with you. Bless him. And anyone else who prayed that prayer today, God, and made that decision in their hearts, I ask God that they will know this incredible acceptance of God and this will be the beginning of a new journey with God in their lives. In Jesus' name.